Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke, oh, sorry, Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 20 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 858 if you are using a church Bible. I think for the other two services, I kept telling them to go to Luke 2. But we're in Luke chapter 3, page 858, Luke chapter 3 and verse 10. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we come before you now. Uh, before your word, and we ask, God, that you would prepare us to receive it. Sometimes we don't have ears to hear. Sometimes our minds are distracted by other things. Sometimes our heart's not ready. And so we ask you, God, by the Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and help us to hear and help us have a humble heart that is ready to receive your word. We ask that you would do a work in us that is undeniably yours, that you would be so specific in application of this text uh, in each of our lives. You pray that, we pray that you glorify your son in our hearts and in our minds, that we might treasure him more and more. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is our last text before we come to an adult Jesus. And it is a text where we finish our look at the ministry of John the Baptist. And in ancient times, uh, a coming king would send his herald ahead of him to prepare the people for his arrival. And John the Baptist is that herald to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus Christ. And the way that John prepares the people for Jesus' coming is by calling those people to a deep repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness are the two themes of John's preaching. Repentance being a sorrow over sin and a desire to do it no more. It is a turning. That's what the word means. It's a turning from how you used to live your life and a turning to an entirely new way of living with the confession that my life's direction was in the wrong way, and I now want to live my life in the right way, which is God's way. And the admission is such that I need to be forgiven. I can't earn it, nor do I deserve it. I need to be washed. I need to be changed. With John's baptism being a symbol of that very desire to be made clean by another. Jesus' herald, John the Baptist, preached this message with such urgency and with such pointedness and even with such confrontation that the proud needs to be broken down, the low lifted up, crooked, the crooked must become straight, and the rough places need to level out so that Jesus Christ might be welcomed into the human heart. And holding up a vivid coming judgment in front of them, I mean, let me read to you the synopsis of his sermon in verse 7. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
The last image of John's message is that of a fruitless tree getting chopped down and thrown into the fire. That's his conclusion. I mean, can a sermon like that even work? It defies every kind of church growth consultant's counsel to preach your way into a larger congregation. But the message of repentance, forgiveness, baptism, judgment has been so urgent that the people actually become desperate to respond. And it is in the text before us that we see a few different kinds of responses. Look with me in verse 10 as we continue to examine John's ministry. And the text says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. We have in these verses much of the crowd's response to the heralding message of John the Baptist. And the people understand his message. That repentance is not so much an exercise of the lips, but an actual change of life. They know that repentance is not about saying the right thing, but it is about doing the right thing, which is exactly the verb that we see over and over and over in their questions. What then shall we do? Teacher, what shall we do? And we, what shall we do? Three times it is asked by the crowds because they know repentance is a matter of doing. We shouldn't ever fool ourselves into thinking that we are repentant just because we can say the right things and nod our head and amen at all the right times. John the Baptist responds to them here again and again with tangible actions signifying a change in their pattern of living. And so for the general crowd, he says this, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Notice here that repentance unto God is witnessed by our treatment of other people. And this is not a surprise at all, because the greatest commandment, Mark 12, 29, Jesus says there, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love for God is intimately intertwined with love for others. Love for God will always express itself in the way that we treat other people. We have it backwards when we love ourselves with all of our hearts and souls and minds and all of our strength and efforts, where we love ourselves more than we love God. That is called sin. And this kind of heart will always evidence itself in our relationships where we are more self-protective than self-giving and more self-centered than mission-centered and more selfish than loving. But genuine repentance unto God is always evidenced in a real changed life and will always be seen in the way we treat other people. John is bringing this principle to the very ground level. You have two tunics that was like a light coat. You have two tunics and someone doesn't even have one. Share. You have food and someone doesn't have anything to eat. You share. That's a lesson as simple as being taught in our preschool. 
and a lesson that even adults have a hard time implementing. But the repentant heart unto God will be more sensitive to the human needs around us. Now, John's response here is not to place a responsibility on, oh, the country needs to do this, or the government needs to do that, or the church really needs to start this kind of program and ministry, or, or the synagogue needs to do this. And once they all get their act together, then sign me up and I can do something about it. Now, John points to a very concrete need at the very ground level. I have two coats. I can really only wear one at a time. This person doesn't even have a coat. My love for God demands my love for people. This is what genuine repentance looks like. You have two, you give one away. If any of us are waiting to have a hundred tunics before we can give away just one, we got it wrong. Everyone in this room has enough to have this kind of heart towards people in need. This is very ground level food and clothing. And this is the kind of love for people which searches out need, sniffs it out, sees need, because a repentant person looks for need and wants to fill it like our Savior searched for our greatest need for forgiveness and gave his own life for it. Luke then shows us two subsets of this crowd, and it is the tax collectors and the soldiers who come up to John next, and they are asking the same question, what shall we do? And to the tax collector, John says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. To the soldier, he says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. What we have in these two groups of people are those who stereotypically use their position and power to leverage more money into their own pockets. The tax collector was viewed as the scum of the earth by first century Jewish people because they decided to work for the enemy, pagan Rome. And they're going to tax their own race to pay the enemy? And what became a standard practice was that the tax collector would say, you owe this much when they really only owe this much. And they would take that and put it into their pockets. Y'all hate me anyway. You call me a traitor all day. I might as well be a little self-indulgent at your expense and use my power and position to gratify myself. John is saying, don't do that. Genuine repentance doesn't use position and power like that. Now notice what John is not saying. He doesn't say quit your job as a tax collector. He doesn't say overthrow the system or organize a revolution. Again, John is at the very ground level. You can do this tomorrow because that's where we need to begin to act out our repentance. Don't do standard practice even if everyone else does it. Don't use your position in a cash-grabbing kind of way. To the soldier, these are likely Gentiles. They also had a reputation for capitalizing on their position. John says don't shake people down. Don't use threats. Don't use false accusations. Don't use the sword to grab more money from the people you're serving. Again, John's not saying don't be a soldier anymore or lay the sword down, but he brings it to the very ground level, day-to-day -day life. Don't be that kind of soldier. The gospel preaches to us that the Son of God uses all of his position and power to save us and to give to us and to provide for us at great cost to himself. The world preaches to us to use all your position and power to save yourself, to treat yourself, to hoard for yourself, to be more self-indulgent. You earned it, even if it might cost somebody else. Godly repentance leads us to a gospel mindset more than to a worldly mindset where we want to become givers rather than takers. 
That's why John hits this over, over, again and again. And he goes a bit further with a soldier, which I think is applicable to the entire crowd and to us as well. He says, be content with your wages. The reason why people are greedy and the reason why people want more and more for themselves is because they are discontent. We always have to chase the next thing. And it's a thirst that's never satisfied. The book of Hebrews warns us of this in chapter 3, verse 5, commanding us there, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why, don't, why shouldn't we love money? Because we have God. Why shouldn't we rest our security on cash? Because God already promised us. He's not going to leave us nor forsake us. Don't love money. Be content with what he's given you in this life. When we love money more and more and more, it's because we have lost sight of our God more and more and more. We don't feel secure in that relationship. And so we want to diversify our security in a bank account and security that God offers. And then we begin to trust dollars more than we do Yahweh. Even though he gives his very word, which can never be broken. I will never leave you and we will forsake you. But with the glitter of gold shining in our eyes, we can easily become less content with our God and become more discontent with the lot in life that he has given to us. And often it is that instead of using that as alarm bells ringing to press more into our relationship with him, we decide to build bigger barn houses and diversify our security portfolios because we can go all in just with God. And then we want more money. And then we begin to justify the use of our position and power to grab more money rather than give it away, to look to more capital and cash for our security more than we look to our God who is supposed to be our rock and fortress. I don't think it is a mistake that Luke chooses to highlight the money matters in relation to genuine repentance because how we spend and view our money is a crystal clear window into our very hearts. And it is into these very hearts where we must test if our repentance unto God is actually genuine. What we spend on is what we value. It's always the case. Your checkbook tells you what you value. And our attitude with our possessions, if we're so possessive over them, tells us exactly where we are at with our God. And the question that the listener and the reader of this passage is met with face to face is, is what do you do with your money? What do you do with that extra tunic? What do you do with the position and power that God's given to you? Maybe even more fundamental than that. What do you fantasize about? What do you daydream about? How are you going to spend on yourself and invest it? The money you do have to make it grow and last longer so that we can be more comfortable and feel even more secure later? Rather than having an eye to the mission of God and to your neighbor in need, that is a sure sign of a lack of genuine repentance and a sure sign of a lack of grasp on the gospel itself. And they may sound a bit extreme, but that is John's very message to the crowds here. And so the question for us is, do you use these resources to lovingly meet the needs around you or do you use your resources and power to gratify only yourself? Are your finances used primarily on you and your family, accumulating more, hoarding more, and making more cash, all driven by a thirsting discontentment? Or do you feel the freedom to give it away because God said he will never leave me 
You will never forsake me. And to feel the freedom from the claustrophobic confines of me, 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 me. John the Baptist here, he's not preaching generically against all sin. He gets to the specifics, the nitty-gritty. And when we think about our own repentance before God, we must be very, very specific because sin can hide out and survive in the generalities. Brothers and sisters, is there a need that God has brought to your attention that you can fill at the very ground level in your daily living? Is there a relationship that you need to work on to love at the ground level in your daily living? Or is there a selfishness and self-absorbance and self-indulgence and self-protection that needs to be cast off in your life? Then we must do it. We must act on it because it's so easy to feel a false sense of spiritual security and safety in repenting only with our lips and not with our lives. Verse 15, we continue. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John here sets the coming Christ in great distinction from himself. Don't even put us on the same plane. Because the crowds were asking, maybe it's John. Could he be the Christ? I mean, look at the way he holds himself. Look at the way he teaches. Could he be the Messiah? Maybe he's the coming promised one king and deliverer. And what we have to understand here is that John's ministry is not some small venue. There are, there are multitudes of people from all walks of life coming to John by the thousands, traveling far and wide to listen to every single word that would come out of his mouth. And then they would stand in long lines to be immersed into his baptism, repenting of sins out loud in the hopes of forgiveness. And the movement is such that the people have no category for it. We've never witnessed anything like this in our entire lives. Nor has Israel seen this kind of preaching in 400 plus years. And so their most natural explanation for this phenomenon is that John, this wilderness preacher and prophet, with such boldness and directness and urgency, maybe, maybe it's him. It could be him that is the promised one, right? And it is John's response here, which is very telling of his own heart. You know, usually when someone hears a bit of praise, sometimes we can begin to believe it. Tell the kids, oh, you're getting a lot better at basketball. Really, Daddy? Maybe I should go to the NBA. No. You're a good, you're a good leader. You're so smart, really, a good CEO. And, and then we begin to so easily drink the juice. Maybe I am. And if John were like most Christian leaders, he would seize this moment to write a book and build his platform and initiate his brand with the justification that as this brand and platform grows, it can be a use, uh, used as a force for my message and expand my fruitfulness. Thousands now, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands tomorrow. The Messiah and his herald, number one and number two. Of course, Jesus number one, but me right after him. But John's response, again, is very telling of his heart. He pours ice-cold water on the whole idea of it. 
He says, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. My ministry and what you see here is nothing compared to what is to come. And the visual that John uses to set Jesus in utter distinction from himself is that of a slave who takes off his master's dirty slippers, which is a task that even rabbis exempted their own servants from because that would be too menial and too degrading for you to do for me. What John the Baptist is saying to a crowd who wants to exalt him highly is that I am below the lowest slave when it comes to comparing myself to Christ. I'm nothing compared to the mightier one. Do not exalt me, exalt him. And this isn't a, a false humility which can be so prevalent within the Christian community. For John explains exactly why. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I'm using water in a dirty river. This isn't real cleansing. The coming Christ is going to immerse you into God himself with the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't a depreciation of what John is doing. This is a bowing of his soul and his entire office and his entire ministry to the greater ministry which is to come. Jesus' baptism is the true baptism. That by the Holy Spirit, you can be immersed into Christ himself and be one with him or you will be immersed into a judgment of fire. It's one or the other. That's what the ministry of the Messiah will make clear. You think John is confrontational about repentance unto forgiveness? The coming king allows only two options, be baptized with the Holy Spirit or be baptized into the fires of condemnation, which is exactly what the image of the winnowing fork preaches as well. What a farmer would do is shove this long winnowing fork into his crop and throw it into the breeze above him. And what was light would separate from that which is heavy. And so the chaff would naturally separate from the heavier wheat which would fall onto that threshing floor. The winnowing fork is how that was separated and the wheat would be gathered and the chaff would be burned. John is saying, you think I'm the Messiah? Just because I preach? I'm the promised one because there's a couple thousand people here? I'm not even as high as a slave. While I call you to repentance and herald the forgiveness of sins, I'm just preparing the way. The real Messiah is coming to separate the entire world into two groups, those who will be immersed and united to him and those who will be burned eternally. I am nothing but a voice crying out in the wilderness to make your path straight to welcome this Messiah in. My ministry is merely preparatory. Nothing more it is preparing for the real ministry of the Son of God. Don't ever put me in the same place. Now, if you're not a believer or maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're new to our church and you're asking yourself, what is going on? I thought this God is supposed to be a God of love. What's with the winnowing fork? Jesus Christ is a God of love. But he is not a God of only love. But he is a God of love. And later on in Jesus' life, we will get a picture of the Son of God. 
and this Messiah and this same king and this same judge with a winnowing fork in his hand, and yet we will see him on his hands and on his knees washing the dirty feet of those who had followed him, not just taking off the buckle of their slipper, but scrubbing their filth. That's John chapter 3, that somehow the Son of God and God himself would place himself in the position of a slave to wash the worth worst filth off the dirtiest place we have that his ministry would be likened to that of the lowest servant which is really just a pointer to the act by which God chooses to save for the way that Jesus washes our sin and cleanses our filth is not externally with water like dirt off a feet but it is within our human hearts where our real contamination lies and it lies very deep that the very way that he can bring forgiveness of sin and a real washing is by submitting himself to even a lower act of servitude, that he would die upon a criminal's cross and pay our debt and receive the fire of God's wrath against our sin. He says, put it on me instead of them, that by his own shed blood we might be forgiven and by that same shed blood be washed whiter than the snow because he lovingly and willingly dies in our place. And the way we know that that offering has been accepted and that the judgment for the Christian is no more is that Jesus rises again from the grave. Yes, he defeats the power of sin and death, but he also proves that the payment of his own life, it's been accepted and that our punishment is paid in full. And therefore, any and all who will repent and believe can be accepted by this holy God, and not only accepted, but by the Holy Spirit, be immersed into himself to be one with the Creator who designed us to know him and enjoy him forevermore. This is the greatest act of love the universe has ever witnessed, that God somehow would serve the sinner and that he would wash his enemy who deserves to be killed and judged by being killed and being judged in my place. God absolutely is a God of great love, but God is not only a God of love. And there is a winnowing fork in Christ's hand because if you will not be united to him in the Holy Spirit, then you must endure the fires of judgment for your own sin upon yourself. When you reject Jesus, you reject the only way of salvation. When you turn away from this Christ, you're turning away from the only way of forgiveness and the only path of reconciliation with a God who made you. And so God's love is for all, but not all will receive him. And for those who reject him, they will receive an entirely different kind of baptism. But everyone will be baptized, either in the spirit or in the fire, gathered as wheat or burned as chaff. And doesn't it make sin all the more sinful to deny Jesus' great act of condescending love measured in how far he degraded himself for our sake in dying for sin and as sin in our place. It makes our sin all the more horrendous and all the more urgent to be repented of. And so John, again, while hearing his own praise, he still knows his place. And he hates hearing the crowds praise him because he wants the crowds to praise the Christ. 
And he understands that his own ministry is just a pointer to the much greater ministry and his own life just a witness to the greater life. And in a world of celebrity pastors and preachers and Christian bloggers and platforms and brands and mega churches with their pastor's face advertised all over it, we find the simple beauty of the ministry of John the Baptist who wants the spotlight off of himself, the mere slave. And he wants the people to exalt the person and work of Jesus. This principle is not just for John the Baptist. This is for all of us. Philip Ryken, he says this, he writes this, being Christ-centered is not just for ministers, however. It ought to be true of everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The whole direction of a truly Christian life is to make more of Jesus and less of ourselves. Is that the direction of your life? Let's get out of the generalities. Is that the direction of your family? In your marriage, is it to make more of Jesus and less of myself? Or is it to make more of myself? You better listen to me. In your families and the way you raise them, is it to make more of Jesus and less of myself? In the way that you invest your finite resources in this temporal time period, is it to make more of Jesus and less of yourself? Or make more of yourself and less of Jesus? In your thought life, in your free time, we can ask this question in every specific so that we can see where sin is still reigning and where we need to hand off our life to Jesus. Church family, is this the direction of your life? If it is not, this morning is the time to turn to a new direction of living in repentance. We continue in verse 18, and we'll close with this. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. With these verses, we come to the end of John the Baptist's ministry in the book of Luke. We come to the closing of his career, and it's not on any bestseller list or with a retirement party. It is in prison where he would later be beheaded. Herod the Tetrarch divorced his own wife to marry his brother's wife, who he convinced her to divorce his brother so that they could get married. So he breaks up two marriages. And because of Herod's position and power and authority, which was all used for his own selfish gratification, it is because of his position and power that many were afraid to say anything to this leader of the people except John the Baptist. While he preached the good news to people. Now, side note, preaching repentance, forgiveness, the coming judgment, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's all called good news. That's all called gospel. When we tell people to repent and be forgiven and see the supremacy of Jesus and the coming judgment, that's called good news. While John preached the good news to the people, he didn't discriminate who would receive this message. And he calls even Herod to repentance just as specifically as he called the tax collectors and soldiers to repentance as well. That you're divorcing and taking another man's wife. This is wrong before God. But I'm not even finished. Because that's just one thing among a list of things that you need to repent of before Yahweh if you want to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. And that message landed him in prison. And it would later cost him his life. 
And so while we have earlier in our text a lot of proper responses from the crowd, feeling that deep conviction in their hearts, what shall we do then, John? Not everyone responds in that way. And some will reject the message with vehemence, which is what we see in these final verses. Now, I don't think that John is thinking in that cell, man, maybe I shouldn't have gone so hard. Maybe I should have opened up with some jokes and lined up a little bit. Maybe a little ambiguity would have went a long way further than frank directness. Maybe I should have told Herod, you know what, Herod? This is not God's best for you. You're not going to reach, Herod, your highest potential. This is not the best path for your life rather than calling this horrendous sin that you need to repent of. Maybe I, I should have offered forgiveness without repentance and God's love without change. And maybe I should have painted a picture of the Christ with no winnowing fork in his hand and delivered an easier message instead that God somehow centers his entire life and his entire existence around you and what glorifies you, Herod. So keep on doing whatever fulfills you rather than this call to center your life and your existence around God and what glorifies him. Do you think that John is filled with regret here? In the cell? I should have changed the message a little bit? I don't think so. I think this is a fitting and very similar end to a long line of Old Testament prophets who were faithful heralds who died at the very hands of the people God sent his messengers to. Because the value of this forgiveness and the glory of this reconciliation between sinful man and God himself is worth more than my life, is worth more than this man's lust, is worth more than an extra tunic or a second helping of dinner. This gospel message is worth more than me capitalizing on my popularity to indulge myself and use my position to line my own pockets and set me up for the rest of my life. I am just a servant of Christ who isn't worthy to untie his sandal. And by my life and by my death, I honor the mightier one who I am not even worthy to be compared to. This is the ministry of John the Baptist, who the Bible calls great before the Lord. And may that be the cry of our very hearts, church family. I think we each do have to make a decision about our Christianity. Whether it is for Christ to increase and for us to decrease in real and practical ways or whether we want to substitute a different version for it. That Christ enables me to live my best life now, fulfill my potential, build my platform, deliver my heart's desires to become the truest version of myself or whether it is that to live is Christ, and to die, gain. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we thank you for your work in John the Baptist's life. I pray, God, that you would help us be more like that, that you'd help us understand the joy of losing our life to actually gain our lives. Father, you know the human heart. You know each of us so well. 
And you know how easy it is for us to become distracted and intoxicated with the shiny things of the world, with things that look to be more secure than our relationship with you. Father, please wipe our eyes. Please show us in giving us greater faith that you're our rock and nothing else can be, that you're our highest joy and worthy of all of our affections. God, show us the the beauty of a life that loves you with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, express in actually loving our neighbor as ourself. Bring us to a deep and genuine repentance and a deep and lasting joy in you. And I pray that you would use our church family in a mighty way to bring other people to see the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask that he would be exalted and increased even if it means we be decreased. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.